Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Jeremy Jameson. Dr. Jameson is Associate Chair and Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Rochester. The primary focus of his work is to understand how experiences of stress impact decisions, emotions, and performance, and how stress responses can be optimized to promote resilience in the face of stressors. In the episode, Dr. Jameson discusses why we need to stop thinking of stress as bad, how to optimize your stress response, the role of social media when it comes to stress, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Jeremy. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun. Excited to be here. I always love talking to professors. And I mentioned off air, I have a couple friends who are professors. And I've had several on in the past. And it's great to hear from you. I know you've done a lot of research that we'll speak about specifically on stress. But I don't know. There's something about professors. They're usually really, really solid episodes. So I guess the pressure's on. <laughs> yeah. No, I wish my students thought the same way. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> they get stuck in all the time. <laughs> like, I know. What age level do you teach? Um, it's all graduate students and um, undergraduate students. At oh, okay. So. Got it. Uh, and then, so as a professor, I used to be a high school English teacher. And so I'm always curious, do you try to police devices and things in class or what do you do as a professor? Is it just kind of like if you're on your phone, you're on your phone and you're just missing this kind of good luck on the exam or whatever. Yep. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like you're you're an adult, right? Yeah. I want to give people freedom. If like you Mm -hmm. want to come to class and you want to sit there on your phone, that's that's your decision, but we're going to have a conversation. We're going to talk about topics that you probably might want to remember. 
(laughs) this is probably a good thing to listen to yeah um but um yeah it's it's very much a a very flexible very free environment yeah and we try to support our students as much as we can that's good i mean some students need to do that with taking notes or being on their phones like i don't know what they're doing for sure the bad ones when they have like a discord channel about me and i'm like hey like don't don't do that (laughs) i don't want to see myself on tiktok (laughs) no no (laughs) yeah i guess it's different with high school too i was teaching freshmen so there at the school there was a kind of no phones policy but which i think was good because they would just all be playing games on their phones not taking notes i'm pretty sure a lot of them were playing games on their computer anyway because i would see their fingers moving with just the mouse buttons and then i would say i know you're playing a game and they're like how do you know i was like because what would you be doing right now with the little not the mouses the arrows just the four arrow buttons i mean that's not taking notes you know um so now you have that trick if you ever see somebody just pressing the arrows you know they're playing a game that's okay (laughs) yeah that's okay too maybe it'll help them focus but i would love if you could share with us what specifically led you to become a professor of psychology and then to focus on stress specifically. Yeah, no, it's always, I get a lot of students ask me this too, especially ones that are in my lab who work with us and who help us run all of our studies. Like, how did you like do this? Like I want, I mean, like I assume that are interested in research. Like I want to do this kind of thing. Or how did you go this, do this thing? And I kind of don't have a good answer for that. This is, <laughs> this is a lot of, Ran, it's a lot of random things happened. And so I was not a psychology major when I was an undergrad until my senior year. And what it took is reading like a few papers. And I really liked this one kind of research. I was a biology person. And I thought I was going to go work for a drug company, sort of making pharmaceuticals. And that's what I was going to do. And I had an internship and I didn't like it. And I was like, I really liked just the process of doing research. I read a few articles and I was like, wow, this is really cool that we can change our cognitive factors actually affects our stress responses. I, I was like, that's fascinating. I, w- I really want to do this. <laughs> and in college, I was a full player in college. Like, I was a, a safety. So I played football mm-hmm. in college. And a lot of my teammates, like before games, like football players get really excited <laughs> about things. And they, so it's all rah, 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 like let's get amped up before a game. <clears throat> and I was like, well, that's a, <clears throat> that's a stress response you're having. But my same friends who are my teammates, we were in class together before an exam, they'd be freaking out. And it was a different kind of stress response. And they were just, I was very curious about why the same person responded in very different ways based on the context. So you just change the kind of stress context and all of a sudden their, their response completely changes. And I was just, I'm very interested in that. Like what about your psychology? What about your, what's going on cognitively is affecting why you're responding one way in one situation in a different way in a different situation when really it's the same thing. And oh, wow. yeah, that, that's kind of what got me into that, this whole stress thing. And I kind of kind of got away from it a little bit when I was in graduate school and did a lot of eye tracking research when studying stereotypes. And then I went back sort of into my stress and stress regulation roots in psychophysiology back when I was a postdoc. And that's what I do, what I do now. Hmm. Are some people more prone to stress then? So the person who's amped up before the football game would you expect that person to be really stressed before a test or is it just situational? It's very situational where the stress isn't. So when you talk about stress, it's just the body's response to any demand for change. Anytime you have to do anything, there's a stress response essentially. So just activating the sympathetic nervous system, just tur- it's like turning a light switch on. When light switch is on, the stre- you're, you're, you're feeling stress. 
And so things that cause that stress, we call those stressors. And so th- those like very minute differences in terminology like really matter to us. And so a stressor is these things that are creating demands in our environment. And our stress response is meant to address those demands. Okay. And we have lots of different kinds of stress responses. Some of the issues are that in our culture, we consider stress as a distress. There's no difference between those two words. People never use the word stress to explain when they're excited or when they're really ex- eager to do something. They always use the word stress when they're feeling overwhelmed. And so that, that, that the word stress doesn't actually mean that. And so we, thus, yeah, this is a really, like, I can go a, a lot of detail about this, but this is something that uh, we struggle with. And a lot of our regulation paradigms are designed at sort of breaking that misconception that stress is just always bad for you. Uh, okay. Interesting. So stressors then would be the game and the test causing yeah, exam, the stress response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And those are what we call like acute stressors. Those are like very, like they exist in a situation. Once you play the game, take the test, the stressor's over. There's chronic stressors that are more things about living in an impoverished environment. If you don't know where your next meal is coming from, that's a chronic stressor. Those two things are also very, very different. And so a lot of my research focuses on acute stress paradigms. And so we want to understand how people react to stressors that have an acute demand that can be reacted to and that can be addressed. Okay. And so I'm just trying to get my head around this. So if you is acute stress, then less of an issue for people typically than chronic stress. Cause it's there and then it's gone. No, unfortunately no. no. So okay. a lot of the, so a lot of acute stressors become chronic stressors. I was going to say, be, so people okay. would be anxious about maybe have an assignment due or they have a, like, I don't know, um, their manager has given them a project to complete at a certain date. They put a demand on that employee. And so that person needs to do that at that point. They can choose not to. If they choose not to do it. They're going to get poor performance reviews. They might get fired. Or a student, the student can choose not to take the test. They're going to fail or they're not going to progress to the next, the next class. So a lot of these acute stressors, when we get really anxious about them, they actually can snowball. And... And then I can back up a little bit. Like a lot of our body's responses to stress, the architecture is there physiologically to address physical stressors. That's how we evolve. And so there's things that could harm us in our environment. If we cognitively appraise that I can't address this very difficult thing, your body's response is, okay, I think you're going to get hurt. That's really what our bodies are doing. I think you're going to take on damage. I think you're going to, so what I'm going to do as your body is going to help you survive and sort of live to fight another day. A lot of those responses are sort of keeping blood in the core of our body. So not letting blood get to our brains, our extremities. You have expression, actually we have in English, we have an expression called cold feet. That's exactly what this is. Like our hands and feet get colder because less blood's flowing there. And among its many other functions, cortisol is an anti-inflammatory. So we praise that we can't address the stressor. We release all these anti-inflammatory hormones because we think we're going to take on inflammation. The issue a lot with our modern society is the stressors are social in nature. If I do poor than this test, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to get hurt. I'm going to lose social standing. I'm going to lose the ability to sort of take this harder class next time. If I do poor this job interview, I'm not going to be harmed. I'm just not going to get the job. And so those are social stressors, but our bodies responding as if they're physical stressors. So evolution hasn't caught up to like, 
what society is right now because it takes hundreds of thousands of years to do this process. And when we experience these, what we call threat responses, we're essentially telling our body, I don't have the, the resources to address this demand. But if you flip it, where if I think I do have the resources to address the demand, the body's like, great, I'm going to put all of the blood out to your brain. Let's give your brain lots of oxygen. Oxygen is really good for you for performing. I'm going to release all these anabolic hormones, like all stuff that like if like professionals are taking these hormones, they would be banned for a long time. And so your body's producing these naturally. And so that's a stress state though. When we're really excited, when we're really amped up to take something on, we're feeling stress. It's a different kind of stress state than if we're feeling anxious and feeling threatened. But those things matter a lot for performance. So somebody who is really challenged, who's really sort of excited to take on this, this difficult situation, they're going to outperform someone who's relaxed. Relaxation is not the goal. It's about being like in optimal stress states in these settings. Okay, so optimal stress states. Yes, that's what so, was the way we, yeah, we okay. talk a lot about optimizing stress. When I say optimizing, that's what we mean. We mean getting people into these really adaptive, really functional um, states that can be really helpful for them. Right. So the let's roll with the job interview. So the suboptimal stressed out state is you're really anxious, blood's not flowing, you're tensing up, whatever. But then the goal is to switch into the optimal stress state. So you're still feeling the stress, but you're kind of uh, using it in a productive way. Yep. That's the nail on the head. It's, okay, it's so using, then how do you do that? Using it. <laughs> It all, it's, it's a very, this is going to sound really simple, but um, when our stress systems are responding to demands in our environment, our stress systems don't know what's really going on. Our brains tell it what to do. And this comes from a very, really direct appraisal process. Like, do I have resources to address this demand? If we don't usually consciously think about this, we're not explicitly going through like, okay, like I get one check mark on that ledger, one check mark on that ledger. And what's the scale looking like? Is this one outweighing that one? We don't do it like that. It's happening pretty automatically and really fast. But there, it's about a ratio. If I think I have the resource to address the demand, I'm going to approach. If I think I have, I don't have the resource, I'm going to avoid. And so this approach avoids distinction is really basic in organisms. And so when your body's approaching something, it's going to mobilize resources to help you address that. If you're avoiding something, it's going to try to help you survive in for another day. It's survival versus thrive. So survive versus thrive is a very different way of thinking about this. It's not really quite fight or flight. It's like survive versus thrive. We, we kind of we like, we like that terminology a little better. Mm -hmm. And I think what you said is really important. If you realize that stress can work to your advantage, it's better than being very relaxed heading into the interview. You could perform better, but not mm -hmm. if you're in the suboptimal state only if you're in the optimal state yeah what so like would being be, like yeah yeah so sorry being like really calm and really relaxed is way better than being threatened you don't want to be that and so that's mm -hmm. sort of that's all sorts of bad stuff for performance all sorts of bad stuff for cognitive um capacity but um people who are dead calm don't do as well as people who are challenged like if you were think of you're playing a game if you're like i don't know you're in a if i'm playing football if i'm like sauntering around like lackadaisically yeah. that's, that's not going to be like that's not going to be so helpful for anybody right. if the building if the building's burning down you're going to follow the person who's like walking slowly and like calmly around <laughs> or you're going to follow the person who's like no we're doing this this and this at this time go there that's a different right. kind of response and it's also not helpful if you are in a football game and you're so suboptimally stressed that you're just you can't move at all cuz you're so anxious or 
right? You have to be in the optimal stress state. Yeah. It's like the difference between like, so trying not to lose versus trying to win. Those are Mm. completely different things psychologically. You see, baseball is a better example. I, I used so many sports examples. I apologize. <laughs> I, no, I, I okay. like following sports I'll try to hang with you. I'll do my best. <laughs> but, um, the, in baseball, but if a player is, so let's say a batter hasn't had a hit in a while and they're in kind of a slump. Baseball players have practiced their swings so many times that the movement is so proceduralized. They don't just think about aspects of the swing. It's just a swing. If someone who's more novice holds a baseball bat, they have to think about, okay, hold my hands like this move my hands this way, turn my feet or my hips, like those steps to take. And so, but if a player who's really well practiced with this in the stress state, they might say, okay, I'm performing poorly. I'm worried about keeping, I'm worried that I'm going to fail. I'm worried. I'm more anxious about things now. Maybe I'm screwing up this one part of my swing. So what they do is they pay attention to that one part of their swing. And by trying to make that one part of their swing really, really good, it messes up the swing. Because stress, when we get really stress states, we really we do things that are well practiced. This is why people practice. This is why musicians practice all the time. This is why athletes practice all the time. When they're in these high arousal stress states, they do these automatically. And the stress helps them actually do those automatic things better. And so runners, cyclists, swimmers, everybody performs better in meets than they do in practice. Because mm-hmm. of that evaluative pressure, it's adding more stress. The stress actually is good for them. But if you're focusing on not messing up that one part of your swing, it breaks down proceduralization. And oh, so this okay. is this is where um, when people get threatened, they think that they can't do something. And then what they do is they try to fix like a specific thing, but actually like it breaks, it's, it's not good for their performance aspects. Is a solution then to be in the optimal stress state, going back to the job interview, just to practice then beforehand? Practice absolutely is really important for you having the resources to take on this challenge. Okay. If you can anticipate the questions, if you have answers set aside, you now have the skills and knowledge to address the stressor of that interview. Um, I should go back. A lot of really interesting research on how proceduralization breaks down in these high-pressure situations. Um, CM Bylock, who's the president of Dartmouth College, does really wonderful research on this. And so it's work that we call like choking. So how people who are so great at these things can do poorly, and it's through these sort of stress processes is how it happens. Mm. And then I'm thinking of the example of the exam as a teacher in my past life, I used to do SAT prep classes and really the whole point of it was just that you practice, that you familiarize yourself with the test so that when you go in, you know what to expect, you know, how many sections there are, you've had the experience of sitting through really long, a really long exam, just the endurance of that. And so you get in there and you just even though you have no idea what the questions are, you feel like, okay, I've got this. I can handle this because I've seen this before. I've done this before. And so it sounds like just getting yourself to the headspace, whatever it is that you need to get to, to feel like I can handle this is going to be helpful. Absolutely. So you're, you're hitting on a really key aspect of what resource appraisals are. So I've been talking about resources and demands as these like two big pillars and like, or I guess like it's like, scales and so if resources outweigh demands we're challenged if demands outweigh resources we're we're threatened but resources can be a lot of things and one of the big ones is familiarity and so part of going through these practice tests going through the sections is you're familiar with those settings you can rely on what you know 
And so uncertainty, people don't like uncertainty in general. And so anything that reduces uncertainty is generally good for us. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a big part. So resources are like this, this word that encompasses actually a, of a lot of different things. And part of it's familiarity, it's skills, it's knowledge, it's social support. The, all these things could be resources to us. Right. Okay. I think I may have mentioned, I can't remember if I did, that the way, the way I found you was I was interviewing another person. I believe, uh, I think it was this woman named Karen Koenig, if anybody wants to go back to the episode, I believe. Uh, and she deals with a lot of emotional eating stuff. And she was saying for people who are stress eaters, just kind of taking even the word stress out of the equation, like you said, it's often a negative connotation. And so people will think, I'm stressed. I have to resolve it somehow. I have to deal with it. And then they'll turn to food. And she said, I believe again, don't quote me if you're listening to this. I think it was her. She said, if you can reframe stress as busyness that you can handle. And she said that can work wonders. And instead of telling yourself, cause what you think is true and it just kind of is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So instead of thinking all the time, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed and getting yourself into now what it sounds like this more suboptimal stressed state you can think, I'm really busy right now, but I've got this. And that reframe can make all the difference. Do you agree with that? Is that kind of like what you're saying? Or are you offering kind of a different? Um, yes, no, no. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so I, think, I think in general, no. So I think you said okay. that the I got this statement. Mm-hmm. I got this implies that I'm, I have the resources to deal with this. That's, that, that phrase means that. If... So I, I should also note that I have a tendency to eat a lot when I feel stressed. And this is just something mm-hmm. I do, um, partly because I like food a lot. But um, I also reproach these things that, that I feel safe doing, and part of that's eating. Um, but the idea behind stress, it carries a lot of meaning to us. And I think that this is something people don't quite realize how full that is. So in our culture, like I, I mentioned before, no one uses the word stress to imply that they're excited, that they're looking forward to something, that they're amped up about something. They use stress to mean overwhelmed and distressed. So a lot of our regulation work we do, if people didn't believe that, we would actually have no work to do because people would think stress is actually helpful for them. Mm-hmm. So instead of, so we, we have a phrase like people are stressed about being stressed. Yeah. <laughs> So they have stress about the idea that they're going to be stressed. And yeah. that idea is creating a demand to them. Like literally their worries about being stressed are de- are stressful. It sounds weird, but like thinking about being worried about being stressed is stressful because it is creating demand for, for us that we have to then now address. And the way we address that, do we do meditation? Do we do relaxation? Do we do eating? What do we do to address that, that stress we feel like we have to get rid of? A lot of our work is saying you actually don't need to get rid of it, and it can be fine. Mm-hmm. And that we mean we have, have to have a plurality of what stress means to us, mm-hmm. and we don't have that in our culture. Stress is bad, and we yeah. need to do things to get rid of it. That's all we should do is get rid of it. You don't do things to optimize it. Optimizing stress sounds weird. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? You can't optimize stress. Stress is a bad thing. You can't make it good. We, like we get this a lot. Like, what are you talking about? Like, no. Like, we break it down. Like, this is what your body's doing. And this is why it's doing it. And do you think that could be helpful for you? And they're like, oh, yeah, it actually makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, oxygen's a pretty good thing for our brain. Like, yeah, cool. Like, you want more of that. <laughs> and so what that's yeah. doing is your heart's beating fast. When your blood vessels are dilated, oxygen's getting your brain. 
and that's cool. That's going to help you. And people mm-hmm. are like, oh, okay. So when I feel my heart pounding, feeling palm sweaty before I take this exam, I should think that's fine. Like, yeah, that absolutely is fine. It's normal. And you should have that. If you didn't have that, that means you wouldn't care. So if people didn't care about things, they won't feel stressed. So right. disengagement's disengagement's the easiest way to not feel stress. You don't engage with anything. You don't try anything hard. You don't innovate. You don't do things that are difficult. That's the easiest way of never being stressed in your life. But stress can help those things that help us grow. Those help us learn. Those help us expand our knowledge, expand our abilities. We otherwise we just kind of stay the same. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. So it's just completely reframing your mindset yeah. about stress. Uh, yes. But mindset is the absolute correct word for this. So Aliyah Kroom at um, Stanford University, she's a collaborator of mine, and she's a really wonderful work and literally made a scale that measures stress mindsets. And it measures, do we think stress can be enhancing? Or do we think that's always debilitating? And that idea behind stress can be enhancing versus stress is debilitating, it, it's pretty predictive of a lot of things like grit, resilience, all these things people do, like, do you take on difficult challenges? If I'm in, let's say I'm in eighth grade, going to ninth grade, and I have a choice between taking this really difficult algebra class or taking like an easier, maybe like, I don't know, I don't know, an easier class. I'm just making it. I've never done it. The only time I was in eighth grade was when I was in eighth grade. But there's two options they could take, like the hard math class or the easy one. Do I want to take this hard one I could possibly get a bad grade in? It's going to be really difficult to do. But if I do this, I'm going to gain knowledge and gain skills that are going to help me in the future. It's going to set me on a track to actually then go into these STEM fields or do I choose the easy route because I'm scared about that failure. Um, part of these mindsets about stress is that the stress you're experiencing when you do these difficult things is going to help sustain your performance through those hard things. The stress isn't there just as a benign thing. It's actually helpful. So we, we tell people to lean into this, like lean into your stress responses. This is something that's, that your body's doing something because you care about this because you can now grow as a person and you can acquire skills you wouldn't be able to acquire before. If you don't have stress, you, can, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. People out there just handle stress better than others. So the people who are handling stress better, are you saying those are the people who have just a better mindset about it? It, it can also be about the, the quantity of the demand. And so if okay. you take on sort of bite off more than you can chew type situations, it's not always good. You can't be a, a chronic approacher. <laughs> if you approach <laughs> everything, they think you're like great at everything. You're going to run to a situation where you're like, oh, no, I actually can't do this. And then you're kind of stuck. 
And those challenge responses kind of change if that response is pretty fast. Like our, our, our appraisal processes are pretty dynamic. Like we get feedback from the world. But um, yeah, people who generally are more resilient, like really perceive that they can take on the challenges in their lives in different ways than people who are or less resilient, who are more prone to anxiety, who are more prone to sort of avoiding these negative outcomes. It's not about seeking out a positive challenge, but avoiding a negative thing that's going to happen to them. And like that simple sort of direction of a mindset about stress is, is your stress response oriented towards helping you approach difficult things or avoiding difficult things? And that that's a really, it's, it's kind of basic, but like, I mean, like amoebas do this. You shine a light and amoeba will go away from it. Like approach avoidance is like a really low level thing we have in our brains. It's not something that we created as psychologists. This is like a basic thing of biology. Mm. All the time, we both know that the terms eliminate stress or manage stress are thrown around. And so it seems as if stress elimination is not a thing that can ever happen. Stressors are always going to be there. And so we shouldn't be trying to eliminate it, correct? That's. Yeah, I. If I'm going to say anything that's like quasi controversial, like strong in this, it's, it's that, yeah. Don't ever try to get rid of stress. Okay. You can't get rid of stress. What about managing it then? When people say, I need tips for managing my mm -hmm. stress, or, you know, here's 10 things you can do to manage your stress, do you feel like that's the right term, or should it just be opti We should be just trying to optimize our stress? You, you need a balance. That's the thing. So you can't be, you can't do everything. Now, everybody has unlimited resources. And so it's almost you get to pick your battles. And managing it is about, so co we, we call it stress coping. Coping is like getting by. You're going to get by with some, some things, and it's not going to be fun. You're just going to get by. But there are certain situations where you can't optimize, you can't thrive. So thriving and getting by are different things. Like when, when do you regulate in a thriving way, in an optimizing way? When do you regulate in a coping way? That goes back into emotion regulation flexibility when we select the strategies we need to learn. I can't okay. speak broadly for everybody. Everyone's going to have a different calculus with that. But there will be times when people will need to manage, will need to reduce stressors in some domains. But often it's about reducing demands is not the same thing as building your resources. And so I think when we think about stress as this sort of ratio, this scale of approach, where really it's about do demands outweigh resources, we can make we can reduce our stress by reducing demands. That's That's reducing the stressors. We can remove assignments. We can um, delegate projects to different people. But also, we can grow our skills. We can sleep more. We can study harder. We can approach difficult things. And so if we learn more, we can keep always building that. Like, I try to do this even in my life where like, we, so we've, we're moving to like, new statistical analysis. And I'm always trying to like, learn more about like, how to, can I analyze my data better? How can I do things better? And, and you're always trying to push yourself in some way. And that can be important. Mm -hmm. I also feel for myself that I might be more stressed in a bad way about things <laughs> uh, if I'm not taking action. And so like you were just saying, is it sometimes just managing stress is just taking actions that help alleviate it in some way, the bad stress? Am I making any sense? Oh, yeah. No, sometimes the, the demands can seem bigger when they're in front of us. So when they're like in the horizon, they seem bigger. But when yeah. we sit down in front of it, all of a sudden that, that big sun on the horizon is like, now it's here. Like, oh, that's not so big. Yeah. Um, it, seems really, it seems really big. It's my, my, my wife has a really good term with this. She's like, sometimes people just got to sit down and get their ass in the chair and do some work. 
Yeah. And that's what it is. Like you just got to get started. When times you get started, the hardest part is getting started. Right. And once you get started, it kind of flows. And, and you just kind of chip away at helpful. it. Yeah. yeah no, so then this insurmountable thing is broken down into actionable steps and you just work on yeah, it. Yeah. And, and also it, it's, yeah. yeah. And it becomes that insurmountable thing. You've engaged with it. It's engagement. So before when you're thinking about this insurmountable thing as in the, as like this distant thing, you're not engaging. Once you've engaged with it, now you're actually, you're, you're in it. So you're never in it if you don't engage. So there's a, there's a really classic research in psychology on, on the process of learned helplessness. And the work, I, mean, I don't want to rehash the work done with. It was done with dogs and it's really depressing and sad. But yeah, no, I have, I have a new puppy and I can't yeah, do those kinds no. of things. But <laughs> well, just take the, your word for it. <laughs> the idea of learned helplessness is that the, the organisms can learn the not, to not even try, to take bad things in. So have, to basically accept negative things being done to them and not even try to do anything about it, even when there's an option to, to, to do something about it. And this is happens with stress sometimes. Like we've learned that I shouldn't even engage this. I shouldn't even try. That's not stress. Those people don't experience stress. They experience learned helplessness. Mm. And, but it's caused upstream by stress at some point. And so some of the worst things that happen from people feeling overwhelmed and feeling stress is that they actually don't feel stress anymore. They disengage from life. They disengage from difficult things. Oh, wow. I think I've heard this, uh, I don't know, probably from a relationship or a marriage therapist or something where they say actually disagreeing or fighting in a relationship isn't as bad as if you just stop engaging altogether. Like that's the worst thing that can happen is if you just don't even care enough to disagree. That That's what that reminds me of where you just, that's when there's real trouble. I could be wrong. But no, have you heard no, something no, there's like no that? There's no stress anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have in at University of Rochester, we have one of the world's preeminent relationship researchers, Harry Reese, is here. And a lot of what this is about perceived responsiveness from partners. You want your partners to be responsive to you. And being responsive entails engagement. You can't be responsible for being engaged. So disengaging, those are like avoidant attachment styles. That can be really, really damaging for relation quality. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on social media and stress. <laughs> I don't even know what question to ask. Just, I'm just going to throw it out oh, there. Boy. Any thoughts you have on social media? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, this is anyone who knows me will be like, Oh no, 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 no. You asked the wrong question, the wrong person, <laughs> but it's, so I'm not a huge fan of social media, put it that way. That's very simply. I don't think it's very healthy for humans period. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what function it serves. I'm not sure why we like this, but I've, I was on the Facebook when it was the Facebook in 2005. And yeah. I very quickly got off the Facebook. I realized what the Facebook was pulling from our data. Um, but for psychologically, it, it really boils down to social evaluation and social comparisons. Adolescents in particular are really, really sensitive to social hierarchy effects. And so they're really sensitive to social evaluation really sense of the hierarchical standings um, within their groups. And this goes back evolutionarily where if you're a primate, the time that you can move up and down social ladders is during adolescence. Once you're an adult, things are solidified. You're at the top, you're at the bottom. Hmm. And so you do risky things. It doesn't matter if you're an adult. Adolescence, when you do risky things, you can go up or down pretty quick. And so adolescents are really tuned in to this hierarchical way of thinking about social status. And that boils down to social value of pressures. 
we, we've done some research where we created a novel social media platform. So this is with uh, Heyoon Lee and David Yeager um, at the University of Texas. And we were looking at, essentially people wrote kind of little bios about themselves. Other kids when they thought in their high school also did this. They chose a little avatar picture to represent them. It's a really sort of minimal, low-key social media sort of interaction platform. But what we did is we let them people read the profiles and they would give it likes or not. They could like it or they could not like it. But we put a ranking system on the right-hand side of the screen and we rigged it so the people weren't getting any likes. They were at the bottom. So even though they were getting a few likes, they weren't getting enough and they were sort of hierarchical ranked lower than other people. Those people were feeling lonely, were feeling anxious, were feeling sad. And we did this in an experimental paradigm. There was no... These weren't real people they were interacting with. We just, we literally randomly assigned them to get a lot of likes or no likes. That was it. And this, that very minimal, meaningless social media platform, the fact that it could push around their well-being, push around students, uh, for their push around adolescents' anxiety levels to that extent was really worrisome to us. And it was even amplified for people who were victimized in real life. So people who, so these kids who were being sort of the targets of bullying, the kids who were being marginalized in their classrooms, they were especially affected by this kind of feedback. So it's, it's a really about a constant state of evaluation what we're putting on our children. And it can be dangerous sometimes. And I, yeah. I, I don't want to, so what we're doing, we're adding stress. It's stress. So evaluation is stress. Mm-hmm. And so we're essentially having this shining, glowing thing that students are interacting with on their phone all the time there's a constant source of demand and stress in their lives where it's not about getting direct negative feedback. Even it's about not getting enough positive feedback. I didn't get enough likes on this and I didn't quite understand how powerful this was until I was, I was more than my cousin. My cousins are much younger than me. I have a lot of, I love cousins, um, but they were much, much younger than I, than I am. And they were like, well, I posted this picture up and like, I didn't get any light. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, I was like, this is insane. But I realized like they were really like, like the amount of likes they got on that post were just tied to their self-worth in that moment. And I was like, and I was like, Whoa, this is, this is, this is not fun. Um, so I'm sure there's things about social media that people can espouse positive things with. I can't find them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, yeah, it's a kind of, a, I don't mean to be pessimistic about this, but really a lot of the research is not very optimistic about how social media is affecting, especially adolescents psychologically. I think it's an important conversation to have, uh, especially for adolescents, especially when I was teaching and I would hear from parents all the time, my child is so anxious and stressed and then kind of turning to, I don't know, I guess it would be in parent conferences. So turning to the workload or the exam they took or the paper they wrote and focusing on those things. But from what you just said, it sounds like, the stress could really be coming mostly from the phone and maybe they wouldn't be so stressed out. Like, does it kind of overflow into other areas then or? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm old. So, I mean, I remember when like, I, I didn't, I mean, I mean, we, we started passing papers in like maybe seventh grade. I started writing things on computers, but I, I have memory of before that happened, but you knew like there was like, so-and-so may have said something about so-and-so. That, that, that was around and it's always been around, but now it's not just saying it, it's out in social media and you can see it and it's to everybody and people can, and like 
there's even like ways of like not including if you don't tag somebody on some picture there's a lot there's so many things now yeah, i don't even know, know the extent of it but a lot of it's boiling down to social evaluative pressures and a student can so if i don't if i'm me as a fifth grader i need to hear my friends say hey like so-and-so said this about you like okay like that's a bummer to hear but it's like had to take my friend coming here and telling me this to my fit like there, there was there was like there was a process to this yeah now i have some, i have something in my pocket that i can pick out of my pocket and look at immediately and see everything about that not just someone who said this but person xyz and, and a and b are doing yeah. this and when people are seeing social media posts what they're seeing is people's curated most positive versions of themselves and they compare themselves to this. And when adolescents seem, well, my life isn't as good as this other person's life. They might have such great, they're doing all these great things. I'm not. But they're not seeing the true self of that other person. Mm-hmm. This is like a reverse correspondence bias effect where we have all the information about us, but we have very limited information about other people. We just make really strong judgment calls about other people's character based on these really very small situational um, examples. But yet we know all of our own situations. So even if we're posting up all the great things about us, we still know all the shitty things about us too. Right, right. But we don't make that same difference with other people. So it's it is a it is a very so it's tough to study too because every time research wants to we, we try to do these large scale studies in social media, by the time you plan out an experiment, plan out something with like Facebook, it's irrelevant. You have to move to Instagram. Now Instagram's relevant in the TikTok. Now TikTok's relevant. You have to move to Discord. Like you have to keep moving to like what it's like a moving target trying to hit it. Like what is like how does this platform work? How does that one work? Like what's the difference between that? Mm-hmm. But the purest distillation is that it's social value of pressures. Yeah. And social value of pressure is stress. If a parent is hearing this and now just freaking out because <laughs> they have a sorry. teenager yeah, who I, has I, a phone. I apologize. Sorry. But I mean, what is then? the action because phones exist, social media exists, all their friends are going to be on it. So is there then stress that if you're not on it, you're stressed because you're left out and everybody else is on it, but you, I mean, what's the approach then? What do you do? Solve the social media issue. What is the answer? That is is the catch 22 is that if you disengage, if you don't want to be on social media, you now have a stigma against you because you're not, you're not doing something everybody else is doing. And you're right. going to feel left out. Um, is it just like limiting time uh, no, on social media? If parents yeah, can do that, I, or at the I, least, I don't, I don't have the answer. Yeah, <laughs> right, this, right. I, don't know. I mean, so I tutored uh, virtually through COVID three sisters, and their parents, I think, made a really smart choice where at night, at a certain time, all their phones had to go into a basket. I think it was before dinner. And the phones didn't come out of the basket until the next morning. So through dinner, they didn't have phones. After dinner, they could read. They could, you know, watch a TV show as a family, whatever. They could not take their phones into their room at night, which I think could be that scares me of letting. I'm sure it happens to boys, too, but letting like a teenage girl in her room, looking at a phone into the wee hours in the morning with just who knows what's going on there. You know, if somebody's saying bad things. I mean, then you're not sleeping. Um, so then they got the phones back the next morning. And in my mind, I was like, okay, that feels like they have the phone, but then not in their bedrooms and they don't have it all the time. That felt like a very reasonable 
kind of approach to me. And they knew too. I think if they didn't put their phone in the basket before dinner, then they lost it for like three days or something. So they would put it right in there. It wasn't a fight every night of wow. don't take my phone away. Cause then they knew they would lose it for three days. I mean, it just seemed like a well, well oiled machine and I would see it happen and they would go, Oh, I got to put my phone away now. And it just became part of their, and they were all, they were, I think fifth, seventh and ninth grade. So they were in kind of these critical years. So I don't know. What do you yeah, think about that? Could that That's work? It. So I'm not, I, I will, I am not a clinical psychologist. I have never seen a patient. Right, right. I have never done any therapy. I am a biologist turned psychologist who studies stress. Um, that, my, my children are also six and nine right yeah, now. So yeah. this is like we're starting to interact with these kinds of questions. Right now, it's starting off like switch and video game usage. Like how much can I play our video games? And I don't let our, our son interact with um, – on. he's not allowed to go online with the, with the switch. He can only play locally with this console. Like, like we, when I was a kid, like you can like play Nintendo. Right at your house, and that's it. You can't talk to other people across the world. But his friends are doing this, and that's a really good, I think, thing where you're limiting. Really, by doing that, what you're doing is limiting the the, the window for evaluation. There's like a mm-hmm. safe zone mm-hmm. for this child. This child can be safe during this time, like interacting with the family, uh, having more deeper social connections with people that you live with. I, I mean, I personally think that's a good idea. I, I don't have a lot of sort of insights in terms of like empirical research behind this, but I think it's, it, it seems like a really reasonable thing to do. And I also don't, I mean, if anybody's listening to this, don't take either of our word for it. We're just over here. I'm not a clinician. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I study, I study it how just it works. Seemed, it seemed reasonable to me and I'm sure there are fights sometimes, but I don't know, you know, the fights that you would have, are those worth it? Maybe if they're avoiding the evaluation, like you said, if you just go back to sort of how many hours of the day are there, are they on these apps evaluating themselves against other people? And if you could even reduce that, could that be helpful? I don't know. But well, I uh, for myself though, I mean, if I find myself, if I have my phone with me while I'm at work, I, I have like an urge to like check email or like pick it up, see if I have any text messages. Like the fact that it's there you're noticing it because it's a salient stimulus in your environment. You know, you get all this really cool social information from this little device. And so I can like almost like export my social self to like this world when I should be doing something else. I should be focusing on my job, focusing on teaching or focusing on doing research. Um, I'm tempted to do this. And so I, I often leave my phone in the car a lot when I go to work. I just like don't bring it into my office with me because I know it's myself doing this. And I was getting worried that like, wow, I'm not being as like in the moment as I should be. And this goes back to a lot of research on mindfulness, like being sort of in the moment and sort of dedicating your resources to everything you're doing in that moment. Um, you can't do that when you're worried about evaluative pressures from like this little tiny screen that we have in our pockets all the time. Right. No, I, I think that's a great point for, yeah, we're putting all the, <laughs> we're putting all the focus on teenagers, but adults, no, we're, just we're just as guilty. We all do. Yeah. We all do. And I think it's just the being aware. And then like you said, taking actions to kind of counterbalance the, it's, it's a necessary reality for most of us, but then how can we not let it sort of completely overwhelm us, overwhelm our lives and cause added stress, suboptimal stress, not the <laughs> optimal form. <laughs> I, I mean, I love this conversation so much. I learned a ton. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? 
So I, I actually, I thought about this and I think that this is an interesting thing where I would almost like defer to like my wife for this question. She's the one who <laughs> takes care say? of it. We've, uh, we, we do a lot of things to try. So it's more, I think it's food, food and sleep. So food and sleep are important. It's not how much you eat. It's not exactly what you eat. It's about the kind of thing you eat. And so I think that's really important. That's helped me a lot where I grew up in a inner city type environment where I was eating a lot of fast food, eating a lot of um, things that were kind of junky. And the more like just real food I eat, like not processed things, it can be things that aren't inherently good. It could be steak, it could be fish, it could be whatever it is. But when it's not, I, I really try to avoid processed food. I know it mm-hmm. sounds weird to me from a psychologist, but there's one thing I just don't eat a lot of is processed food. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this, this is coming from my psychologist now hat on. A lot of our studies, anytime you put a measure in a study, you ask somebody, how well did you sleep the night before? And you have a rating scale on that. That scale explains more variability in people's behavior and performance than a lot of other things that we study. Like most anything else that I study. Sleep is really, really powerful. And you mentioned having somebody put a phone, if you're looking at a, a, a screen at two o'clock in the morning and going down these rabbit holes and you're not sleeping, sleep is really predictive of a lot of health processes and a lot of health outcomes. And so it's like kind of, I don't know, I would say move around, eat real food and sleep. That's mm-hmm. kind of it. <laughs> and optimize your stress. Would you throw that in there? <laughs> yeah, you gotta grow. You gotta, everyone has goals. Like how, yeah. do, you, how, do, you, how do you reach a goal? Uh-huh. Like a goal, a goal implies you need to do something you haven't done before. Mm. That's stressful. It's inherently stressful. So how are you going to do that? Are you going like, to just like sit around and like the goal just comes to you? Like, no, you got to go get it. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, I really liked when you mentioned, um, so it's active. It's a very active process. You can't innovate. You can't grow yourself by being passive. Mm-hmm. We need to actually take action and do something. And so we be, we call it agency. You need to be agentic. You have control over your life. You, people, no one's going to give you anything. You need to take it, mm-hmm. and you need to go after what you want. Otherwise, we don't do anything. We kind of just hang around and just do the same thing we've always done. I'm and assuming so it's, it's easy we can't. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm assuming we can't connect with you off air on social media. So, where can <laughs> listeners follow and find you? If Actually, I do. In- <laughs> our university made me have I, we do have to have an Insta, not Instagram um, what's it called uh, LinkedIn I have a LinkedIn account technically okay I very rarely check it so sorry if I do that but okay just, you know, email me I tell me email me like I, like I have a genuine conversation like you don't need to follow what I tweet about or follow what I post on things like just just if anyone has an actual question about anything like literally just email me I'm, okay I'm well that's really nice about getting back to things I can attest so, for that because yeah. I emailed you and you got right back so <laughs> No, I'm fast. Awesome. That's one of speed is like my one little weird superpower I have in terms of like working capabilities. I can do things fast and I do them. That's what I do. But also you're not completely wrapped up in and consumed by social media all day. So you can respond to emails. Yeah, I think I think I scare myself with my own research. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I was gonna yeah, I mean you scared me there in a good way, but I think it's just it's a really good conversation to have, I think, about social yeah, media. Yeah, I don't usually try to, I don't I don't often do that, but that's the one domain I'm like, <laughs> I don't see the function of this in any way for human society. So Yeah, it just yeah. It, have you seen that show Black Mirror? 
Or have yes, you heard of yes, it? I have. I, I've seen a few of those episodes. Yeah, yeah, I've seen a few as well, and some of them are terrifying, and a lot speak to technology and social media specifically. And yeah, so if anybody wants to be more scared about social media, go watch episodes of Black Mirror for sure. But I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much again, Jeremy, for being here. I loved our conversation so much, and. We will all email you if we have follow-up questions. Yeah, email me. Stop by my office if you're in Rochester area. Just come on by, Yuvar. Come and hang out. We have a conversation. Perfect. Thanks so much, Jeremy. All right. You're welcome. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.